Luke chapter 12 is where we are today. And let me just say this up front, okay? Um, As your pastor, my job is to deliver the mail, okay? That's my job. My job isn't to take the text and tell you what I want to tell you. My job is to take the text and tell you what God wants to tell you. And why do I emphasize that today? Well, because we go through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and when we get there, we say what God wants to say. And he is dealing today with covetousness and worry, and both of them with the specific application of your wallet, of your money, of your possessions. That's the bullseye of the lesson today. I'm not trying to crawl into your wallet. God wants you to understand that your wallet belongs to him. Okay, what's in your wallet? Whatever it is, Jesus owns it. I'll just tell you that. So I want you to hear today God's heart on the subject. See, we've been in Luke chapter 12, and as I told you last week, Luke chapter 12 begins the final month of Jesus' ministry on earth. For for the remainder of the book of Luke, we're going to be looking at the last month of Jesus' earthly ministry in the flesh. And Jesus here, he is on his way to Jerusalem, he's on his way to the cross, and he's preparing now his disciples to take that baton that he is going to pass to them, that they're going to continue the work that he began. Um, And so as Jesus is preparing his disciples here in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, Jesus has four warnings for his disciples, four things that they are to beware of. And the first thing he tells them is that they need to beware of hypocrisy. Secondly, he tells them that they need to beware of covetousness. Thirdly, he tells them they need to beware of worry. And fourthly, he's going to tell them that they need to beware of being spiritually dull. Last week, we looked at hypocrisy. And today, as I said, we're going to be looking at covetousness and worry. How many of you have ever struggled with worrying about money? Can I see a show of hands? Every, this is just a test to see if you're awake, because we should all be raising our hands right now, right? Um, I won't ask you to raise your hand on this, but maybe some of you today, you're struggling with worry. I heard the story of a businessman who was stressed out of his mind because his business was just circling the drain. Uh, it, was, it was just washed in red ink. Every time he would go to meet with his accountant, it was, it was an exercise in torture. Um, and, and so this, this, this businessman so stressed about his money and, uh, and he went to see his accountant and he was totally filled with joy. And his accountant is like, man, what, look at you. What, what are you so happy about? Are your sales up? No. Are, are you, you got, you know, have you sold something? You got some influx of money? No. Well, why are you so happy? He said, because you know what? I got the bright idea. I hired somebody to do my, my worrying for me. And he's like, what are you doing hiring people? Like, we're going to talk about having to lay people off today. You're hiring people. What are you paying this guy? He goes, I'm paying him $150,000 a year. He says, how are you going to afford to pay him that? He says, well, that's for him to worry about. (laughs) The big idea of our text today is that we have somebody who promises to do all of our worrying for us. We don't have to worry about our provision or how we're going to engineer any situation that we have a Father in heaven who loves us and promises to provide for us. Now, to set this up, 
let's back up a little bit and, and just a quick review from last week because it, it leads us right into what Jesus is going to say today. One of Jesus' main points last week was to focus on the afterlife. He was talking about hypocrisy, and he was saying that, listen, a day is coming after this life where everything will be revealed. Here's what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, Luke chapter 12. He says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. He's talking about the religious leaders and they just the full court press of, of making people's lives miserable and you got to keep all the rules, you got to keep all the regulations and if you don't that, if you don't do that, we are we're going to persecute you. And they had the power to really just make your life, well they could take your life. This is this was hard. And so Jesus is saying, don't worry about them. Worry about you know th- those who can do something to this this to do something to you in this world, but after that, there's no more they can do. But he says in verse five, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. He's talking about not being afraid of, but having that that reverential, godly fear. Um, and basically he's saying, look, don't live a fake life for the temporary and fleeting approval and praise of men, but live your life for the one who holds the power of life and death in his hands. Now Jesus then adds this in verses 6 and 7. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered, Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What Jesus is doing here is he's making a contrast. He's making the contrast between the harsh and the cruel religious rulers that are demanding this outward conformity, and he's contrasting that with our loving Father who knows us intimately and who provides for us lovingly. And so this is the idea. Look, that's who you got to focus on, that there is an afterlife and there is a Father in heaven who loves you and who, whose desire is to provide for you and to care for you. And, and so we, we fast forward now to our text today. We pick it up in verse 13. Promptly, he said this message, and then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And so Jesus has just finished saying, look, your father in heaven loves you. He wants to care for you. You don't have to worry about all of these outward rules and regulations and all that stuff. You've got to know did you have a father in heaven who wants to provide for you? And, and immediately, this guy says, hey, tell, tell my brother to, to divide my inheritance you know, with me kind of thing. And this is the point where you just see Jesus you know, going, are you kidding me? I'm like, dude, I, I just talked to you about this. Did I, did I just, I mean, it barely just got out of my mouth. I told you that God cares for the birds, that he cares for you that he knows every need that you have, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, the way Jesus says this, it kind of sounds like he doesn't care. When he says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? By the way, the you is plural. He's saying, you know, 
Who made me the, the guy that's wearing the black and white striped shirt and the whistle between your argument, between you and your brother? You know, and, and it sounds like he doesn't care, but it's, it's exactly the opposite of that. That Jesus, he truly does care, but the problem is, is he sees through this man's request to the motive of his request. And what he sees is that this man has a heart of covetousness. And what Jesus says when he says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator of you? He's saying, I'm not, that is coming from from a covetous heart and I don't want any part of that. I'm not arbitrating your argument because it doesn't matter even if everybody walks away happy. Everybody's walking away happy because of their covetousness being satisfied, and I'm not interested in that. Now, what is covetousness? In short, covetousness is insatiable greed with an appetite for more. It's insatiable greed with an appetite for more. As a matter of fact, there in verse 15, if you wanted to circle that word covetousness covetousness, nearby, you could write this. You could write a thirst for more because that's what that is. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me use as an illustration J.D. Rockefeller. And he's a perfect picture of covetousness because he, the richest man who's ever lived, somebody asks him, hey, how much is enough? And his answer just a little bit more, that's covetousness through and through. Covetousness through and through. Now, one of the commentators likens this attitude or this idea of covetousness. They use the picture, the illustration of a dog that you're feeding scraps from the table. And and as I was reading, I was thinking about my own dogs, you know, back, well, they've both gone on to doggy heaven, but, uh, you know, little Bentley and, uh, you know, my little Cavalier King Charles and Boo, my golden retriever, and, and both of them, it didn't matter their size, they both had their same reaction when you fed them a little bit of little piece of meat from the table, they would just gobble it down, take your finger with it, right? And, and you're thinking, did you even taste that? No, they didn't taste that. They didn't savor it. They didn't enjoy it. Why? Because they were just busy trying to get it down so that they could eat the very next thing that came. Just this animalistic covetousness. Brenda and I went to the, the Monterey Bay. Anybody ever been there to the Monterey Bay, the aquarium there? And it's just amazing. There's, there's all these cool things that you look at. Well, one of the tanks that you look at are the, the sea otters. Oh, so cute and furry and cuddly. No, they're animalistic, covetous monsters is what they are. When they feed the sea otters, they take their food and they stick it in little Tupperware uh, things of water and they freeze it. And they throw it in as a frozen block. Now, it becomes apparent why they do that. Because they are covetous monsters, and if you throw the, the, the food in without them having to concentrate on their own food, they'll gobble up their own food and then try to get their neighbor's food. Well, one little sea otter clearly had been there for a while, and he, got, he was used to the drill. So the moment they dropped in these two little feeding brick, you know, uh, ice blocks of fish... He just started slamming it and just getting it to break all the fish out as soon as he can. Now, his neighbor, he doesn't have a clue. He hasn't got the memo yet. So he's just all, you know, oh, thank you. Here's my little fish popsicle. He's focusing on, you know, just savoring it. But this old guy, man, he just breaks it up, eats every little piece, and then he goes and steals the little fish popsicle from his neighbor. A heart of covetousness. Now, covetous may be how animals live, but it's not how we are supposed to live. That's not the heart that we're supposed to have. Why? Well, because covetousness, listen, it destroys 
relationships. Covetousness destroys relationships. Pastor Chuck Smith said this. He said, covetousness is something that just can't be satisfied. It will continue to drive you harder, harder, harder until it destroys those things that are important. I want you to think about it. The business person who is so driven and motivated by covetousness. So to him, it's all drive, 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 covet, covet, covet. He'll sacrifice his wife on the altar of of business. He'll sacrifice his kids on the altar of business. Whatever it takes for him to just get a little bit more. Or, Or you've got the salesman. Who, who will lie, cheat, steal, uh, you know, sell his mom just to make that next sale, whatever it is, just driven by this insatiable lust for more. Or, you know, you've got, like the example we have in our text, dealing with a family inheritance. I won't ask you for a show of hands on this one, but some of y'all, you know what this is about, right? I've seen it firsthand. That there is just ugliness sometimes when it comes to inheritance and people have covetous hearts. And what does it do? It destroys relationships. The writer of Proverbs said this, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. So here's the problem. Covetousness is toxic to our relationships. And it's toxic especially to our relationship with God. Why? Because the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that covetousness is idolatry. Here's what Paul said to the Colossians, Colossians 3, 5. He said, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. Now, when we think of idol worship, sometimes we think of the statue, we think of the, you know, the burning of the incense and all. But here's how idolatry works. You and I, we are created to be worshipers. Everybody on the face of the earth is created to worship. And you will worship, worship something. The question isn't will you worship, it's what will you worship. And what happens is because we're created worshipers, our natural inclination to worship, in the sinful state, what happens is that apart from God, we will worship created things rather than our Creator. And whoever or whatever it is that we hold in the highest honor, that we hold in the highest esteem, that will become our idol. And we will worship that idol with our time and with our talents, with the energy that we have, with the money in our wallet, with you know, all the devotion that we have to give. <clears throat> That's how we will worship an idol. Because what happens is that idol becomes our functional God. And so it can be a person, it can be a a pet, it can be a job, it can be a car, it can be a motorcycle, it can be a boat, it can be an RV, whatever it is, it can be recreation or your hobbies, whatever it is, we can have this, this covetousness for this thing that has become our functional God. Idolatry is enslavement to something or someone that we love. And with that in mind, Idols are not always bad things. Sometimes idols can be a good thing. It can be a kid, you know, or it can be, you know, uh, your, your spouse. It could even be your church. What happens is that when you take a good thing and you elevate it to a God thing, that's when it becomes an idol. 
And so the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we have these idols, and, it's, and anything that I'm going to put before God, that becomes the idol, and covetousness is an idol. Jesus now, he tells a parable to, to illustrate this point. Verse 16, says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. <clears throat> and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? since I have no room to store my crops. And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will those things be which you have provided? And so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now here's what I want you to notice. The man in this parable, he thought that it was all for him. That's what he thought. He he says six times, you you read, uh, he says the word I. Five times he says the word my. How many times does he say the word God? None. It's me, I, me, my, my crops, my barns, my goods, my soul. Let me hit the pause button and ask you a question. Is that you? Is that you? Take a good hard look in the spiritual mirror this morning. Is that you? Is that your heart? Because here's what you need to see. You need to see that it was proved in the end that nothing was his. The crops weren't his. The barns weren't his. The goods weren't his. Even his very soul wasn't his. It was subject to God. Paul asked the Corinthians this. He says, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God... Why boast as though it were not a gift? In other words, everything you have is by God's mercy, and none of it belongs to you. None of it whatsoever. I want you to think about it. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, what is it that God did? How does it start off? What did he do? He created what? Everything, heavens and the earth, right? You, your body. He created everything, right? And so makes it, it, that makes it all What? It's his, right? He created everything. It's all his. It belongs to him. And this is what the psalmist said. The psalmist said, the the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. And so again, thinking through Genesis, he creates everything. It's all his, right? And what's he do then with Adam after he creates him? He sticks him in the garden and he gives him a job. And Adam's job is to tend everything in the earth, to take care of it. That's his job. That is your responsibility. This is what's known as stewardship, okay? The idea is stewardship. God owns everything. You own nothing. And we are simply managers acting on his behalf. And at this point, somebody might argue and they might say, okay, fine, God created everything. He created the garden and all that stuff, but I created my business. Well, no, you didn't. 
Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 8.18. He says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. So anything, any work of your hand, God did. God created that. So God gives you the power to get wealth, but listen, He owns it all, every last thing. You are a steward, you are not an owner. There is a big difference between being a steward and being an owner. Put it on the screen for you, write it down. Owners have rights, but stewards have responsibilities. Owners have rights, but stewards have responsibility. Now, I'll use this analogy to explain that. It's not a perfect analogy, but some of y'all, you own your home. And others of us, we rent our homes, okay? Now, big difference between owning your home and renting the home. For, for, for one, if you own your home and you decide, I want to knock out that wall, we'll knock yourself out. It's your house. You do whatever you want. You can paint that room purple. You can paint it pink. You can paint it chartreuse. You can pl- paint it plaid, whatever. Go all hipster in your room. You do whatever you want to do. It's your house. But if you're renting that house and you decide to knock out a wall, there's a problem. Why? Because you ain't the owner. You you rent that house. And a day is going to come when you're going to have to give an account to the owner. So again, you and I don't have rights. We have responsibility because God owns it all. And here's the implication. We have to give an account for everything. For the money in your wallet, for the money in your bank account, for the possessions you have, everything. It's all his. And so you don't get to lay claim and say, this is mine, I can do with it whatever I want. No, God says, I own it all. And you will give an account. I mean, think about Jesus' illustration, Matthew chapter 25. He tells us this story about this, this owner, this master who's going away on a long trip, and what's he do? He entrusts talents to his servants. He gives five talents to one guy. He gives two talents to another guy. He gives one talent to a third. And as the story goes, two of them go out. They invest it. They have an understanding that they have a stewardship responsibility. This ain't my money. I got to put it to work for the one who's entrusted it to me. He expects a return on his investment. The third guy, eh, I, I, I'm not doing nothing with it. And so the master comes back in Jesus' story, and the two guys get rewarded who invested it. The other guy, hey, he, he, you're out of here. And, and the, the Lord is saying, that's the way it is, that God has entrusted everything to you. You have a stewardship responsibility, and God's coming back. And he expects for you to have invested what he has entrusted to you. Again, the question is, are you doing that? Because the example that Jesus gives here in this story in Luke chapter 12, we'll notice verses 20 and 21. God says to him, you're a fool. All my stuff, me stuff, my stuff, I stuff. It's me, mine, and, and you know, me, myself, I, and it's all for me. And he's like, you are a fool. This night, your soul will be required of you, and then whose will be those things which you have provided? And so, he says, is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, you might want to circle that phrase, being rich towards God. Understand it's written in the active present tense. Active present tense. Here's the idea. That 
you and I are to be attentive and actively available to God with our possessions at all times. Active, present tense. God, anything that you have blessed me with has been entrusted to me. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you, and Jesus is not telling you, to go live like a pauper, to, to you know, take everything that, that you own. Now, maybe, maybe he does. Sometimes he speaks to people and says, sell everything that you've got and go, go and do this. But listen, the principle is stewardship. We have people that, that, are, that are members of our church who God has blessed abundantly, and they have a faithful understanding of what it is that they're supposed to do with their resources. And, and so, you know, the very real way that we're able to have our lights on and, you know, running water and a place for us to meet is because there are people who God has blessed and they understand it and, and they're, they're a conduit to say, Lord, thank you. Now, now in the God providing for them, they're faithful to give and to, to, to worship God with the first fruits of their income. And, and then God, you know, provides for their family. The, 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 the message here isn't that it's a sin to have means. It's not, a, it's not a message that we all need to live like beggars. It's just that we need to recognize that everything he entrusts to us belongs to him and he expects us to actively and attentively say, what would you have me to do, Lord? And to be in that place to where we're ready to respond to the needs that God places before us. What comes to my mind is James chapter 2. Let's read it. Put it on the screen. James says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye, and have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then you don't give to that, that person any food or clothing, He says, what good does that do? And so the conclusion, you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's dead and it's useless. Now, James says, some may argue that, oh, some have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. He's saying, look, if you've got faith, then that faith is going to include this heart that says, I'm going to exercise my faith towards godliness. I'm going to put feet on my faith. I'm going to live it out. And if I see somebody in need, I'm not just going to go tough for you. I got a barn to build. But I'm going to say, well, no, this is God's blessed me and I'm in a position that I could help. And I, I, I should help. I should participate. Now, Jesus here, he's going to transition from covetousness now to worry, but what we're going to see is they're cousins. We're going to see that they're closely connected here. Verse 22, then he said, Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory 
was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat, what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. So Jesus here transitions from covetousness to worry. And we see that they're very closely related. Covetousness is the fear that God won't provide what we want. Worry is the fear that God won't provide what we need. David Guzik put it this way in his commentary. He said, covetousness and worry are closely connected. Covetousness can never get enough. Worry is afraid it will never have enough. Both have their eyes on Jesus, and that's the point. Both have their, uh, neither, rather, have their eyes on Jesus. That's the point. Neither of them have their eyes on Jesus. See, the problem with worry, hear this, the problem with worry is that it interferes with trusting God by faith. It interferes with trusting God by faith. That word worry in verse 22, maybe you want to circle it. Nearby you could write this. You could write, to have a distracting care. And that's what it is. It distracts you from placing your faith in Jesus. Now Jesus here in this text, he lists several areas that we worry about. Now you can check the box and say, which one are you? Verse 22 through 24, he says some people worry about their basic needs right? Uh, Food and clothing are the examples that he gives. In in verses 25 through 28, um, some, the the worry is my security and and my stature needs. Here's the idea. When he he says there uh, about the stature that, you know, um, uh, let me find it here. Um, Where is it? Which verse? 25, thank you. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Now that word stature is an interesting word. The idea is it can refer to your stature in life. It can refer to your physical height. It can refer to the length of your days. The idea is this, that, oh God, I'm worried about my health. I'm worried that I'm short. I'm worried that I'm ugly, that I'm not pretty like that person. I'm worried that I got a big nose when I want a small nose. I'm worried that my nose is too small. I'm worried, you know, that I'm not popular. These are the stature needs that some of us worry about. He says in verse 29 that, there, that we, some worry about our need, really what he's saying is our need to solve problems. Notice there in verse 29, he says, Do not seek what you should eat, what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. That word seek, in in the original language, what it means, it means to seek by thinking. It means to seek how to do something. And here's the application. It's when we worry and I think I've got to engineer some sort of a solution. I've got to seek out some way to solve this problem. I gotta, I gotta figure out how I'm gonna, how I'm gonna do this thing, how I'm gonna engineer a solution to this problem. And Jesus says some people worry in that way. And there in verse 29, uh, he, he's pointing out how sometimes we worry about just having general doubts and fears. Look again, he says, do not seek what you should eat and what you drink, nor have an anxious mind. That word anxious, it, it's, it's interesting. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament, and, and basically it, 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 
it gets its, its root from a, a meteor that would shoot across the sky. It means to have a meteoric mind, being anxious, having this meteoric mind. And, and the application really is that you're sort of up in the air, that you're, that you're wavering or fluctuating in your mind. Um, you know, the, the Bible talks about how when we pray, and, and if we're, you know, praying with doubt, and just having this fluctuation, we're like a ship that's tossed to and fro on a sea. And, and he says, you don't, don't expect you should receive anything from God if, that, if that's the way you are. So you've got these general doubts and fears, and they cause you this, this distracting care that causes you to be anxious and to be all over the map and not really trusting in the Lord. And so Jesus here, he's giving you all these examples of the different things that people worry about, all of us fit in at least one of those categories, even this morning. And Jesus then says in verses 31, 30 and 31, he says, for all of these things, the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. What, here's, what, here's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that, look, when you worry like that, what you do is you lump yourself in with the rest of the world who has no hope, that has no deliverer. And when you behave like that, you're acting just the same way as they act. In the book of Job, Job chapter 5, we read, God catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and they grope at noontime as in the night. Here's the picture. That, you know, some people get really crafty and, and they sort of engineer, oh, this is what's going to happen. I'm worried about this. I'm going to do this or whatever it might be. But really, at the end of the day, they're just groping in the darkness. And so your, your carefully engineered solutions ultimately aren't going to work out. You're, you're going to find yourself groping like a blind man in the dark, Paul said this to the, to the Corinthians. He said, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, we think about temptation, and we think, you know, lust or tempted to steal or tempted to cheat. And certainly it can be those things. But listen, when it comes to temptation, we can also be tempted to doubt. We can be tempted to fear. We can be tempted to try and engineer a solution to the problem that we're facing, and it's a sinful action. I think of Abraham and Sarah. And God says, hey, I'm going to bless you with a child. And they're like, hey, we're, I don't know if you checked. We're old, and we've been waiting for a long time. So, so we're going to figure this out. We're going to, and, and Sarah's like, well, why don't you sleep you know, with my handmaid, and, uh, and we'll do it that way. And Abraham, being a man, is like, well, okay, we'll do that, you know. And so you're tempted to engineer a solution to the problem. And so this is the idea. So what Jesus here, what he's doing is he's showing us the way of escape. And what is the way of escape? Well, we see it in verses 31 through 34. He starts off, verse 31, he says, Seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do you want to know the three steps of deliverance? Here's the first one. Seek first the kingdom of God of God, when you're worried. See, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The Bible says, conversely, when we acknowledge God in all of our ways, that he'll direct our paths. 
the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. He says to them, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now this applies very specifically to the nation of Israel, but it gives to us a glimpse of the heart of God, that His desire is to provide for you. It echoes what Jesus has said here. That, that your Father in heaven knows the birds that fall from the sky. He knows the very head, the hairs on your head. And, and people worry about a lot of different things. God is going to provide for you. And the first step to deal with your worry is just to say, you know what? i got to seek first the kingdom of God. i got to be able to take all my anxiousness, all my fear, all my temptations to figure out my way out of this. And i just got to come to God and say, Lord, help me to seek your kingdom. Now hold that thought because the very next thing goes with that. The second thing that he says essentially is that we need to trust God for what he wants to give us. Trust God for what he wants to give you. Look at verse 32. He says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is so key, so crucial, so important that we get this. When we start worrying about, about our, our, our finances, about our provision, about, you know, God, are you going to give me these, these different things that I'm worried about, the basic necessities of life or stature or whatever it is, we need to understand, hey, God, I'm going to trust you for what you want to give me. I want you to notice, Jesus didn't say here, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you everything you want. Jesus didn't say that, did he? He he says that it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you what he wants to give you. How many of you parents know that if you give your kids everything that they want, it is not a solution. It creates a bigger problem because they got little covetous hearts. My name is Jimmy. Gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, I want to... I want it all. And so the, the problem is, listen, we have to trust God for what he wants to give us. When I was planning this church, I went out by faith, and, and, and I left a regular paycheck, and, and it was kind of a scary time. And, and my sweet wife, during this scary time, she looks at me and she says, now, I'll, do, I'll go anywhere you want to go. Do whatever you want to do, but I just got to know that, that this is what, you know for sure that this is what God's called us to do, right? And I looked this sweet woman in the eye, and I lied right to her face. <laughs> and I said, yes, I know that this is what God has called us to do. Now, I was struggling with doubt, and I was struggling with fear, and, and really, I was afraid that I was just going to lose everything. I mean, you step out, I'm in my 40s, and I remember this conversation I'm having with God. I'm like, you know, good grief. It's not like I can go back to being a fireman. Nobody's hiring a 45-year-old fireman, you know. And, and I went from, you know, this, this sure thing, this sure paycheck, and I got like eight people in my home in a Bible study. I mean, they're not paying my mortgage. Like, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? And, I, and I'm pouring out my heart. I go, God, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to lose everything. I go, like, am I insane for what I just did? And I remember God just spoke to me, and he, and he basically said this, look, Ted, do you know that I've called you to do this? Asked me the same question my wife is. Now, I knew, between me and my, and my God, I knew that I had. I knew that he told me to do what, what, I, what I was called to do. Thank you, Jesus. But I was freaked out about it. So I go, yeah, God, I, I know that this is what you've called me to do. And so God's next thing to me, this is what I want you to hear. His next 
speaking to me was this. So what if you do lose everything, Ted? What if that's part of my plan? What if I want your house? What if, what if I want you to live, you know, in somebody's room, you know, in their house? In, you know, what, what, if, what if I require everything from you? Is being in the center of my will enough for you? I'm like, wow. Listen, that's the heart of trusting God for what he wants to give you. I was having this conversation with my daughter, Caitlin. She sent me a text. Here's what she said. She said that God had shown her that when we get our focus off of preserving me and on to God's ultimate will for my life instead, that it takes the wind out of fear because there's no room for fear when you just simply say, God, I'm just trusting you. I'm where you've called me to be. I'm doing what you've called me to do. So it's trusting God for what he wants to give you. What is it that you're fearful of today? Peter in 1 Peter 5, 7, he said, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Trust God for what he wants to give you. Now I want you to notice the third thing that Jesus says that we're supposed to do with our worry. We're going to close on this point. Here's the point and then, I'll, and then we'll read the text. Basically, the point is this. Change your perception of money and possessions. You need to change your perception of money and possessions. And what does he say? Verse 33 and 34, he says, Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Let's break that down. He says, sell what you have. The word literally, it means exchange. It means exchange. The idea here, change your perception about money and possessions. And what Jesus is saying is, you take your money and you exchange it for what is that of true value. And what does he say the true value is? He says it's giving alms. What is alms? Here's the definition of alms. Alms is mercy, kindness, or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted joined with a desire to help. He says, look, I've given you the provision for your life and you need to be actively available to God to say, this all belongs to you. I'm just a channel through which this money is supposed to go. So you're providing for me, you're providing for my family, but show me, help me to see where I can extend mercy and kindness and goodwill to those who are in need that I can have this desire to help when a need presents itself. That's the idea. It's a total change in perception about how I deal with it. It's not my money. It's his, and I'm actively available to him. That's the idea. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says there in that, to provide yourself money bags, right? Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. Now, this is interesting. You know, what is, what is, a, a, what is the, a money bag? Well, here, understand the idea. The treasure isn't the bag. It's what's inside the bag, right? And I want you to see this this funny thing. What Jesus is saying, he's he's saying the answer isn't in barns. It's in bags. It's in bags. And this attitude is I'm not building a barn to house my stuff, but I'm filling my bag with true treasure. Billy Graham said this. God has given us two hands, one to receive with and the other to give with. We're not cisterns made for hoarding. We're channels made for sharing.
Are you a renter who's acting like an owner? Because the master is coming. He expects a return on his investment. And listen, we have the pleasure to watch and to move and to see God work. It's a life lived in faith. And you will learn, you cannot outgive God. And when you say, God, I'm going to live like that person who, man, I'm a renter and I, and I realize it. I'm not an owner and I just want to be that channel through which you can, you can move, through, through whom you can work. It'll blow your mind. I want to add this, and I don't have the time for it, but I'm going to. Very quickly, let me just close with this, okay? Same point, just, just hear me. My own personal testimony. I made a train wreck of my money. I, I worked as a, as a fireman, Overtime was plentiful. My attitude was, hey, whatever you want. I'll just work an overtime shift. And then I ran out of days of the week that I could work overtime. I didn't run out of overtime. I ran out of time. I was working seven days a week. I got so creative, I got to the place where I would take a vacation day at the fire department, and then I would work as a paramedic for a private ambulance company so I could effectively work eight days a week and make that much more money. And my attitude was like this guy. It was all me. It was all my. It was all I. And then Jesus got a hold of my heart, and now he starts convicting me about this lesson of being a good steward. And I said, God, I made a train wreck of my finances, and I want to give, but I just don't, I can't give the way that that I I feel like I should. Like, I want to give 10% of my income, not in a legalistic way. This is what I wanted to do, but I couldn't get there from here. And maybe today you're in that place. Maybe you made a train wreck of your finances, but you hear God speaking to you today, and you go, I've... I have been living in a way that if I had to give an account that I have not been investing in the kingdom of God. I would just say to you, look, start somewhere. Just start somewhere. Just say, Lord, I want to give. Just just help me to give to you in some sort of sacrificial way. And, And meet, ask God to meet you there to where you take a step of obedience and you say, I am just going to begin living in obedience And even though maybe I've made a train wreck of my finances, I always seem to come up with some sort of money for something. And so maybe, Lord, I can just sacrifice this thing or the other thing, and you can start getting me on a path of obedience where my finances are concerned. Watch what God will do.